You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is Jess Marion. Jess Marion is a hypnotist, NLP trainer, coach, and athlete. She also happens to be legally blind, but apparently doesn't let that stop her from doing anything. She is the author, along with Sean Carson and John Overdurf, of Deep Trance Identification, Unconscious Modeling and Mastery for Hypnosis Practitioners, Coaches, and Everyday People. And coming up soon, on August 13th through 15th of this year, 2019, she'll be teaching a crash course in Ericksonian hypnotherapy in Las Vegas as a prelude to the annual HypnoThoughts convention. So if you're going to be in the Las Vegas area in August, definitely check it out. For this conversation, Jess joined Carlos and Satch over the phone from her office in New York. Great. We have Jess Marion, the Jess Marion. Welcome to the show. This is so cool. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I know we've been talking about doing it for quite a while, so the day has finally arrived. So Jess, um, tell me about what, what you're working on this like recently, because I know you've been busy. I've, I've been noticing that. Yeah. So, you know, outside of client work and getting ready for HypnoThoughts Live and kind of doing marketing for our pre-conference, I'm currently working on a book on hypnotic coaching, uh, which hopefully will be done sometime between now and this time of year from now. <laughs> hopefully wow. soon. That's so exciting. That's, that's kind of the big project right now. Yeah. Can you share a little bit, at least um, general ideas about um, what you're sharing? Or would you rather just hold it until the book releases? Uh, so I can talk a little bit about it. Sure. Mm -hmm. So it originally started as a, a book on conversational hypnosis. Mm -hmm. But as I kind of thought more about the, the type of work I do, it's much more than what normal, pe normal people, people normally think about in terms of conversational hypnosis. Uh, <laughs> there are no normal people in this conversation, by no. the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so if you look around like the hypnosis world, and I even, when I started writing this book, did a quick Google search for conversational hypnosis, already knowing what was going to pop up, but I just wanted the confirmation. Uh, it tends to be, uh, websites with like really slick marketers selling language programs or some more nefarious individuals selling covert hypnosis to get women to sleep with guys, I guess, or anyway. <laughs> Um, kind of more on the manipulative side and even a lot of the products that are out there in our field about conversational hypnosis, they're really, they don't only focus on language and story and that kind of misses the boat. Uh, the language that we use is important and especially in conversational hypnosis because it is a conversation. However, the conversation is not between two conscious minds. It's not at the level of words. That's kind of the superficial. The conversation is actually between the hypnotist and the client's unconscious mind, specifically the, the uh, client's body. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I've encountered this from some, you know, some people, some practitioners who've been out in the field for a long time, and even some of our former students who, you know, when we teach like an NLP practitioner course and we teach calibration skills, people tend to think like, Oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I calibrate, meaning they, they know when somebody's in a trance usually and when someone's not in a trance, but that's kind of to the fullest extent. Um, 
it tends to be glossed over. And for us, the actual nonverbal communication, the information that's coming from the client's body and how we use our bodies as hypnotists or hypnotic coaches, where the magic is. Mm. And very few people teach it. And it, you know, it's one of those things that it takes a while to develop as a skill, but it is for me, one of the most important skills that I have. Uh, so this book is going to, we're going to touch upon the language, but we're also going to focus a great deal on how you actually work with the client's body, with the unconscious mind in ways that, you know, traditional hypnotists might not see it as hypnosis, but if you're really calibrating, the client goes in and out of trance well before you do any formal induction. And in most cases with the conversational approach, you don't need a formal induction. It's kind right. of, it's in the way. So that's kind of like the, the, the broad picture of what right. the book is. Um, and then once it's done, I'll be able to speak more coherently about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Some of what you were saying um, towards the end there reminded me of some thoughts I had around um, uh, when I was reading Frogs into Princes mm-hmm. by Richard Bandler. Yeah. Um, you know, when he went into that really long description of uh, what's become known as the six step or the end step reframe, yeah, and all of the um, sort of unconscious um, communication that was going on through the body through through having um, you know sensory acuity, but also teaching the client to pay attention to yes and no answers and you know what what body sensations were coming up and things like that and incorporating that into the process and and you know the the dialogue in there that was um really cool was just just kind of how conversationally he put that in it was just like he was describing it was almost like transcripts of what was said saying reminds me of that a bit is it similar yeah, so if you watch Bandler work, he works very much so in this style, though he tends to be a little bit more directive about some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he's you know he's really calibrating and speaking to the unconscious process. Um, even the yes and no signals with a, a six-step reframe or however many steps you want to put into the reframe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a, a great discussion that actually led me to put, post a video the other day about this, about establishing yes and no signals. And a lot of people in their hypnotherapy training are taught to, you know, elicit direct idiomotor response. So setting up a yes, like in this finger and a no in that finger, and maybe like an I don't know in another finger, which is great when it works. But what do you do when it doesn't work? Right. Uh, this, this approach can be problematic. I remember the very first client that I tried this with years and years and years ago after I had learned it. And I like set up everything, thought I was being like super smooth. So then I asked her a question. And instead of getting an unconscious response, say, I, I think if I remember correctly, the index finger was for the yes. I get a very conscious response. Right. So this isn't really useful because it's going to keep circulating the same things that she had been circulating in her head already. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, if in that moment I had taken the broader perspective, I'd opened up the field of vision, so to speak, uh, the yes and no exists elsewhere in the body. We don't have to have it filtered through conscious response, through a client's verbal response. We don't have to have it filtered even through a classical idiomotor response. We can, but we don't have to because if you calibrate when you first invite the unconscious mind to establish a yes, 
calibrating to the entire body, you will see a yes somewhere in the body. If you have the arm and catalepsy, you know, you might actually get like a very kind of overt yes and an overt no, but you'll see it elsewhere and you'll hear it elsewhere. It'll be in the shift in the breathing. It could be in the change in uh, skin tone and complexion. It could be a change in tension and relaxation. So any state exists in a cluster. If you, if you witness a change in one aspect of a client's physiology, that change is going to be elsewhere in a number of other places as well. So if, for example, if you see a change in the client's state, uh, say their skin complexion changes, and then you have them speak, you're going to hear it in their voice. Yeah. So these things exist in clusters. And when you're doing something like a six step where you're establishing or you're using yes and no idiomatic responses, they're going to be accessing states because you're asking them questions that are important to them. Mm -hmm. So they will enter a state that we can classify as yes. They will enter a state that we can classify as no, and it'll show in their physiology. Mm -hmm. Now, on like the broadest perspective, you can think of the yes and no being when the client is in a resource state, when they're in their resource state, that is a yes. Right. When they're in the problem state, that is a no. And in our approach to change work in hypnotic coaching, you know, as we go through the session, I'm constantly calibrating for where's the no going to show up. So we'll do a piece. They get a shift. Great. If they don't, I'm waiting to see what the objection is. Waiting to see, do they go into the resource state or do they go in back into the problem state or do they go into a neutral state? Uh, because that's going to let me know what the next step is. Mm -hmm. So think of resource state is the yes signal. Problem state is the no signal if you're going to take the like expansive view of this type of work. So wait a minute. Are you saying that we should be paying attention to people's bodies? Oh, <laughs> that, that's crazy. Oh, awful. <laughs> By the way, I love your Spider-Man mug. Thanks. I know. I was going to mention that too. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, super cool. Dude, speaking yeah. of spider senses, right? Mm -hmm. Spider mm -hmm. senses tingling. Yep. Yeah, that's and that's, that happens that's, because we all have those experiences as hypnotists. Yeah, there's some in, there's some moments where oh you feel something and you don't consciously know what it is. Yeah, plus because your unconscious mind is picking up on the communication from the client, so then you just investigate and find out what it is. Mm. I, I love that idea, Jess. Um, you know, earlier you you talked about with your book that you're really looking at the body as as the manifestation of their mind. Yes, and it's kind of it kind of reminds me in the in the research world you know, with, um, uh, you know, professional scientists, researchers, mm -hmm. they always make a really big deal about using a measuring instrument that is reliable and valid, yeah. right? This is, this is important for them, right? So like, for example, if you, you can't measure somebody's grip strength on their hand with a thermometer because yeah, the right. thermometer measures temperature, right? So you don't have a reliable measuring tool. And um, I really like the subtlety that you were describing about, you know, if they're consciously lifting their finger, you know, then that's not quite the right measuring tool. So you're, you're looking at this whole big picture of all of these little subtle pieces that come together and you have to calibrate your instrument to measure what's happening with their mind through their body. So their body is the thermometer. Yes. You know, wow, that's, that's great. And their, and their voice. And their voice, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, a, a lot of the calibrating that I do, because uh, I am visually impaired, is actually auditory. Uh, a, lot of my, mm. a lot of my clients are phone clients. I don't even see them. But anything that is existing in the body will show up in the voice. So I'm not tracking necessarily the words they're using unless there's some hot words. Uh -huh. but I'm tracking for changes in intonation. I'm tracking for pauses, hesitations, changes in tempo. 
because all of that information that's in the body, you can also hear if you train yourself to do it. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Um, uh, I'm particularly interested in how you do that. Um, I'm an occupational therapist. And so one of the things that we do, you know, is um, uh, we, well, we we generally learn from our clients, right? (laughs) How to transfer techniques and ways of doing things to other people that might have a similar impairment. And so I find it fascinating that if you have a visual impairment and so much of, I mean, you know, I'm not an NLP practitioner, but but I've, I've learned enough about it to know that you really are looking at a person's body, you're looking at their face and, you know, how they move. And I find it fascinating that um, you have found a way, you know, to, to do this uh, without vision, you know, um, do, do you also have a sense for how their body is moving? So what I'm basically tracking for is symmetry. Okay. I'm tracking in the, in the client, is their physiology symmetrical? Because when a client's in a resource state, they tend to be symmetrical. If someone's sitting here like this, it's really tough for them to do a problem because Mm. counter the physiology is counter to a problem state. Now, when a client's in a problem state, then you start to really kind of get these big changes in physiology. Like you will see like one shoulder higher than the other, or, you know, kind of strange positioning Mm, because the body is going to manifest what's happening internally. Then I'm also tracking the symmetry between me and the client, the space in between us. Uh, That's a really good indication of hypnotic rapport. Mm. It's a great way of maintaining it. It's less clunky than matching and mirroring. Uh, And there's a lot more information when we pay attention to the space and the dynamic between the two of us. So I do have some vision. I can track some things, but there's a lot of stuff I miss because it's too quick and it doesn't yeah. see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm able to track enough <laughs> physiology and I, the, my unconscious mind knows what it's tracking for that I tend to not think about it. And I pick up what I pick up and everything's in clusters. So while I might not see the change in breathing, I will see, I will see that state change manifest in a, a less subtle way in the physiology. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like, like you're not going to be noticing maybe micro expressions in a face, but yeah. you can pick up a micro tone shift in their voice yeah. or, okay. Okay. Yeah. That is, that is awesome. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Really cool. I, I bet there's a lot that you find other practitioners could learn just from listening. Cause do you, do you think other practitioners overuse their other senses and maybe aren't tapping into all their potential with their other senses? Uh, you know, I think it depends on the practitioner. You know, let's face it, the brain is wired for vision. That is, in terms of real estate, that is the sense that is the most dominant. Mm. So if you don't have a deficit in it, use it. Yeah, it, right, right, right. Yeah. Wired. With that said, if we only rely on the visual information, I find that it's, you know, not just because I can't see, I find that that's also very limiting because it limits what we can do in terms of clients. We have to be face to face. You know, you could be on zoom, but there's still going to be a delay uh, between what the client's doing and it's showing up on your screen. So it's not going to be as good as being in person. Yeah. Um, it also means that you have to have the visual feed. You can't just rely on doing phone coaching and phone hypnosis, which does work. Uh, so if, practitioners start paying attention to the other sense systems. It will open up more opportunities in terms of their practice if they want that. Uh, The other thing it will do is I am a big fan of 
you know, having as many skills as possible when it comes to doing this type of work. And if you start tracking the auditory, first of all, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be a novel experience for coaches and hypnotists who aren't used to doing it. Mm. And the other thing that it's going to do is help the practitioner to not get sucked into the client's story. Mm -hmm. Uh, even though we're paying attention to words, we're paying attention to the words in a very different way. And so that, you know, that we're in this field because we want to help people and, you know, a client comes in and they have a really big, terrible story. You know, some practitioners are going to be really tempted to step into that with them. And if both people are in a really bad state, there's not going to be anybody there in that dynamic to save them. (laughs) So it's not useful for the, the hypnotist. Uh, so if you start paying attention to how they're speaking versus just what they're speaking, then that's going to create a little bit more dissociation. It's going to let you hear things that you might not have picked up otherwise. Uh, for example, things like um, embodied cognition, issues in some modalities and perceptual positions, uh, things that leak out that the client's not aware of in terms of the structure of the problem. So we want to empathize. This is not to say like we're like robots and unfeeling and the client story doesn't matter. Uh, the client story does matter. And it's important that we pace that because when clients come in to see us, their story is really important to them. So we want to pace that and have them the opportunity to share that, but not to the extent where we get hypnotized into their trance, believing that you know their life is terrible and they can't change. So this is going to create a little bit of that dissociation. So you have the story, you have the rapport, you have the pace, but you're also in a position to understand the structure of the problem more and to help lead them out of it. Mm. Interesting. You said something that caught my attention. Um, do the coaches, the hypnotists themselves, sometimes mm-hmm. get hypnotized by the client's belief? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that. It's natural. Um, if you if you peruse social media, you'll, you'll see it in the type of questions that practitioners ask. And, you know, it, it's a fact of life. We're caring people. And when we have this type of relationship with clients, a part of us go, you know, just goes, oh, I'm really sorry. That's awful. Uh, or, you know, whatever the situation is. So, yeah, there is, you know, especially for new practitioners, there is that risk of falling into the, falling into the client's trance. And the client's trance is usually uh, involves some core beliefs, mainly that their problem is real. Uh, like a real actual thing Mm. that they can't change, uh, that they can't visualize. This is a really common question that I get from a lot of practitioners. What do I do? My client says they can't, they can't visualize. Well, I mean, there's like a tiny, tiny subset of the population who physiologically can't, but that's not the norm. But that, that client, if they're not in that subset has hypnotized the, hypnotist into believing it and now it causes all sorts of stress um so we need to be careful not to step into the client's trance we have to step one foot in so we can pace them but our job is to pull them into a better trance problems are trances when a client has a problem they are in a trance when they have a problematic behavior they're in a trance for example the i mean the most obvious one is smokers Mm, yeah. If you watch them smoke, well, this, this is catalepsy. They're in a trance. Our job is to provide a better quality of trance for them so that they have the freedom to make a choice. Hmm. 
Wow. That's, that's, that's great. Yeah. When you said uh, embodied cognition, can you talk a little bit about that? Because there are probably a lot of people who are realizing they, they, they know what those two words are and don't know what you mean by both of them together. Sure. So when we are tiny babies and toddlers, we learn a lot about the world. The bulk of the learning, the most learning that you will ever do it happens in the first 18 months of your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and in the brain, one of the names that is given to it is scaffolding. So we learn to relate to the world through very basic experiences, such as looking up at a parent or learning to crawl, learning to walk, <clears throat> uh, learning to eat and chew. These are like primal experiences that we have to learn, learning to sleep. And these can show up in our, client, in our clients as well as our speech patterns, and they can show up as parts of a problem as a component within a problem. So a common one is uh, the submodality of size. Hmm. Uh, when some clients are talking about a problem, that problem can be like, well, I just feel really small. And you'll even see them look up at the problem. Yeah. <laughs> this is really early learning that we're dealing with here. Um, so that, that's kind of a common one that shows up. You might see it show up in other areas. Some modalities is usually the one that I'm listening for. Uh, You'll know it because when a client starts talking about the problem, it's going to be in their body. It's going to be something that, so it's going to be physical and it's going to usually be some sort of relationship. Uh, Some of the kind of like the the common uh, sayings that we have in English are tied into this idea of embodied cognition. For example, you know, Got to learn to crawl before you learn to walk. Mm. You know, that guy, he really st- stood on his own two feet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So, it's time to put the past behind me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Wow. Is it also seen in um, gestures and touches and things like that? Let's say I said, you know, you really, really touched me, and the person puts their hand on their heart. Uh, that's an interesting one. So, yeah, that, that's definitely going to be an embodied cognition thing. Uh, we also have... In our heart, we do have glial cells and neurons. We have right. the material of a brain. Uh, and just some really important things. Uh, it synthesizes oxytocin, which is the love potion, our internal <laughs> Number nine. Oh, that really touched me. They're feeling in their heart. They're feeling the, the release of neuropeptides. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this, this stuff pops mm. up everywhere. I have a quick funny story about oxytocin if you'd like to hear. <laughs> so I, I, I had my hair cut and I noticed the gal that was cutting my hair uh, on, on the back of her neck and on her shoulder, I could see a complex uh, you know, chemical structure that had been tattooed. And I asked her, I said, that's an interesting tattoo. What, what, what is this? She goes, oh, that's oxytocin. I go, oh. And I said, the, uh, the hormone that causes um, uh, milk letdown. And so she <laughs> laughed because... You know, she goes, no, it's, the, you know, it's because of the mother and the baby bond with oxytocin. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. So she, got, so she said, everybody who she tells that to immediately thinks of, of milk being released for the baby. Fact, <laughs> she intended, you know, for it to be about that, that love and bond. So that was funny. <laughs> it was a cool tattoo, though. Very cool.
Jess, um, what what motivated you to kind of take this path to moving into things like hypnosis and NLP and all that? How did you get started? Ooh, that's a long story. Oh, <laughs> I'll good. try to condense it. Uh, so I've always been interested in hypnosis. I can remember when I was little, I saw I saw a show, had some, it had a hypnotist in it, and the hypnotist helped a guy get over his fear of flying. And at the end of the show, the guy actually went skydiving. And I was probably, I don't know, like 10 years old. And I remember watching it and just going like, wow, that looks like magic. Yeah. <laughs> cool. What is this thing? So that really triggered my love affair. And when I went to university, when I was doing my undergrad, the library at my school happened to have a really extensive section on hypnosis. And particularly, it had pretty much everything that Erickson and Bandler and Grinder had written. Really? Yeah. Where so, was this? Say again? Where was this? University of South Florida. Oh, okay. Yeah, they had a fantastic collection. So... When I went to university, I thought, well, you know, I was a psych major. Maybe I'll, like, study some of this stuff. Maybe the library has a book or two. <laughs> so that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of, you know, I'd get done my coursework, and if I just wanted a break, I'd go to the library and get, like, the collected papers of Milton H. Erickson and sit there with my Starbucks and <laughs> a comfy chair. And the funny thing that happened was three hours could slip by, and I would had no idea. And I can remember reading these transcripts primarily from Erickson and trying to figure out like, how is this guy doing this? How is he getting the results that he's saying he's getting in his papers? Once again, it's like magic. Yeah. I have to know how he does this. Um, and I didn't really pursue it beyond that. At that point, uh, I went on to graduate school and, uh, went on to anthropology, which is kind of funny because uh, Milton's bestie was Gregory Bateson. So oh, yeah, that's right. Um, and when I was working on my PhD, I was teaching a number of classes at, at that time and also taking a full course load and starting to get things together for my dissertation. And I had this kind of moment where I thought I was going to go out of my mind. Uh, academia in the U.S. is um, an interesting adventure. Uh, and it's very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult in terms of the demands that are put on uh, the student faculty in terms of the expectations. Like I had to sit on a number of committees and things. And I just thought to myself, you know what? If I don't do something non-academic, I'm going to have a mental breakdown. Hmm. So at that point, I thought, you know, I'm going to go do a hypnosis training. I've always been interested. Why not? So I went and I did a, a hypnotherapy course uh, with Igor Litohovsky. And then two weeks later, I opened my practice and haven't looked back. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> she says, smiling into her Batman yeah. mug. <laughs> yeah. Looking smug. <laughs> yeah. That's so it, awesome. took me, it took me three more years of academia before I finally said, bye. Yeah. Um, Bye. Yeah. yeah. Wow. See, I want to be you. You know, it, it gave me something that was really intellectually stimulating something that to me was way more practical. Like I, when I was working in anthropology, I was working in medical anthropology, which it's very similar to epidemiology, but you work with local cultures. So I was, had these ideas of grandeur of helping stop the spread of infectious disease by working with local communities um, uh, in the developing world. And when it kind of became clear that 
you know, maybe I'd get to do that. But most people who go through this end up becoming professors and living their entire lives in academia. It wasn't for me. I uh -huh. wanted something where I could be really hands on and, you know, have the experience of, you know, helping somebody, of actually doing something good in the world. And this is not to say that academics don't, like, please don't misconstrue. Uh, but for me, that wasn't the path. Right. Yeah. You know what I found in academia is, um, and not that there's anything wrong with this, it's just that people don't know this when they're getting into it, that if you're going to go towards a PhD, you're not really studying the topic that is your major. What you're learning is research. So everybody who's got a PhD has a PhD in research. <laughs> it's just, it's just the lens is just angled on their profession. You know what I mean? And so if, unless you love research, uh, you know, then you, you just got to know that getting into it. You know? Yeah, and you know, research is fine, and anthropology is slightly different uh, because it's we don't have to work with numbers so much. Yeah, you could do field work and stuff. Like yeah, that. we do more field work, ethnographic work, and we work with uh, a lot. A lot of medical anthropologists work with the CDC, the NIH, mm -hmm. WHO. Um, so there is tremendous value in that, um, but there's also an entire it's a very different culture mm -hmm. uh, it's something that i found particularly useful so you've written a few things mm -hmm. and the thing that um where you came onto the map for me was deep trans identification, which yeah. you co-authored, and and uh, it's really a brilliant book. There's lots of amazing uh, perspectives in there, lots of exercises, lots of ways of looking at it. There's really a thorough investigation into deep trans identification. I just thought it would be fun to talk about that with you for a few minutes. Sure, I love DTI. Yeah, this this book, it's like it's my baby. It's one of my proudest books and you know Sean did a, like a Sean and I this book really came out of us doing a lot of experimenting with DTI uh -huh. uh, and actually it all kind of started uh, I was at a training with John Overdorf and he mentioned DTI this was like back in 2011 or 2012 and I immediately texted Sean like DTI let's do this <laughs> yeah and that led to uh, a couple of years of experimenting exploration doing it with clients with each other the uh, the core protocol that's in there that Sean developed that. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, we built a lot on things that John was doing with DTI back, back in the 90s and early 2000s. He's also a, a co-author. So a lot of the work around dream incubation uh, and some of the perspectives on DTI come from him. And then I really went through a period of like, oh, let's just develop a bunch of different DTI patterns and let me go do it with a client or two and see if they work. Yeah. That's kind of the, the second half of the book there. That's so cool. And to, just for a little perspective, um, can you tell us a little bit about, like, let's say, uh, Stephen Gilligan? So the the foundations of DTI, actually, uh, DTI as it exists today, originated in the former Soviet Union. Um, and it got imported into the U.S. in, like, the 70s. And Bandler wanted to start playing with it, Bandler and Grinder, and they were working with Steve Gilligan, who was uh, one of Milton Erickson's closest students. Uh, and so Gilligan started to do DTI with Erickson. 
there's a lot of stories that go around about kind of like the the mythos of Steve and DTI. Mm-hmm. Uh, about when he was first started DTIing with Erickson, he would have paralysis in his hand and the side of his face. And why was that? Because his unconscious mind, because if you do a DTI, you become the other person. His unconscious mind made some cause effect or some complex equivalence that to do hypnosis as Erickson, he had to take on the physiology of Erickson. And what was going on with Erickson? Uh, well, Erickson had Erickson had suffered uh, polio as as a teenager, uh, and actually, that's how he really discovered hypnosis very organically when he taught himself to move again. Uh, after after uh, battling polio, he was paralyzed from the neck down, and he used to sit and remember times of climbing an oak tree that was in his front yard with his little sister. And he noticed that when he really imagined what that was like and how it felt, you know, the bark under his hands, how it felt to climb the tree, he started to get twitches in his hands. Hmm. So he he started to build new neural pathways, uh, and he regained. He pretty much healed himself completely from it. But unfortunately, in the late fifties, I believe it was, uh, he had another recurrent. He had a recurrence of it, uh, ah. and partially paralyzed. So then Steve Gilligan doing deep trance identification on Milton Erickson, you're saying um, he kind of mapped also his uh, physiological problems into himself so that he was kind of paralyzed in a way. Yeah. Very wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a, um, that's a super interesting hypnotic version of uh, the story I heard about um, the hand gesture that the Pope makes. Oh yes. So, so there, there was a Pope um, way back once upon a time that had an ulnar nerve injury. And so the hand takes on, you know, a particular deformity with an ulnar nerve injury. And so every time he would hold his hand up to, you know, make the sign of the cross or bless somebody, uh, his hand, he would hold that hand up and it had the ulnar nerve injury, uh, pattern to it. And so then even today people make that same <laughs> hand gesture and they, they mimic an ulnar nerve injury and they think there was some significant, you know, uh, symbolism to the, to the, the hand gesture. And it's just, no, just an injury. You know, it's funny. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. That, that classic um, sign, you know, when, when the, the bottom two fingers are kind of pulled back and the, the other yeah. three fingers are extended. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's just too funny. It, so is, is DTI something that you use frequently nowadays? Uh, yeah. So I do offer uh, full modeling projects for some clients. I am highly selective about the clients I do this with. Uh, because it is a very intensive experience. Uh, it's at a minimum 10 sessions. Mm-hmm. I have worked with other clients on short-term modeling projects, meaning like they had one skill that they wanted to refine. And that's usually like three sessions, five sessions max. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like those ones. Those are fun because those ones, you see or hear the difference in the skill from the beginning of the, of the project to the end. Could you give uh, us an example? Uh, yeah, so I worked with a cartoonist. Uh, he is he works for a, a major comic book company, and he was working on a, a new comic book. And there was a character that he just wasn't getting right in his mind, whatever uh. right meant for him. Uh, and no matter how much he tried to do it, it just wasn't coming up the way that he wanted it. So he wanted to DTI with his uh, his original art teacher. So I had him draw. Uh, starting like a baseline, the image. Then 
as the teacher, this was probably like the second session in, as the teacher, I had him redraw the image. So now we have two. So the associates into the teacher becomes the teacher. I lighten the, we lighten the trance. So he's still the teacher. He's not him. He draws it as the teacher. And then the final drawing in our last session was the integration of that part of him that is his teacher and himself. And as the integration had him draw a third picture. <laughs> the third picture was what he wanted it to look like. And I, he, he let me actually, he let me keep all three pictures and I can, I can use them for training purposes. Uh, all three are different. Wow. So it's, you know, I, like I know this stuff works because I use it in my life, but to have an externalization of that is really cool. Yeah. That's super cool. I would wow. love to see those, those um, images sometime. That'd be really cool. I'll send them to you. I think they're on my phone. If not, they're down in the office. So when, when I have them at hand, I'll uh, text it to you. That would be great. Maybe maybe we can uh, post them as a kind of an uh, when we're talking about the show as yeah. an example. You know, even like on a on not such a big scale, I, I tend to do DTI with most clients at some point. Uh huh. Um, and the reason why is this comes back to scaffolding. How do we learn? We learn the earliest learning strategy we have as children, as babies, is DTI. Babies don't have beta brainwaves. Hmm. They have, uh, especially in the, the first couple of years, they're mostly in theta and delta. So they're in what we could say trance. They don't have a critical faculty yet. So when they learn to walk, when they learn to speak, they learn by observing and trying on. They learn by mimicking. Right. This is a type of DTI. As they get a little bit older, you know, five, six, seven years old, they're playing with their friends, you know, they're pretending to be Batman or cops and robbers or I don't know, princesses. I have a niece. She likes to be Ilsa. <laughs> what are they doing? They're not just stepping into a character, but they're trying on different ways of being in the world. They're trying on different personality traits, how to be heroic, how to save the day, how to manage problematic emotions for our queen Ilsa. How to have more strength. Exactly. Yeah. We're trying on different ways of being in the world. This is DTI. So this is programmed into us. So when it comes to approaches to therapy, I will integrate it in because it's so natural to how we learn. And I consider uh, hypnotherapy, coaching, whatever you want to call it. I consider that primarily it's a learning opportunity. Hmm. There's nothing wrong with our clients. I kind of, well, in New York, we can't say therapy anyway. Um, wow. and I tend to shy away from it unless I need it for keywords. Right. But, you know, that paradigm see, sees the client as there's something wrong. They're doing something wrong. They're feeling something wrong. That's not it. They're making the best choice available to them at the time. And right. now they've decided that that's not working for them. They need a better choice. So they come to the session. This is a learning opportunity. So I'll integrate DTI, usually in the form of a future self DTI. Yeah. And I'll do this at the beginning because what it does is it formats the unconscious mind. Like this is the direction we're going in. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're stepping into their future self, who's already changed, well, the problem can't stay the same. So if we're doing this from the get go, I know within the first few, first few minutes, the problem's already shifted. So that's usually the primary way I use it for, Specific things, like I have a form of DTI that I'll use with uh, smokers that's wrapped up in uh, one of the pat one of the 
patterns that we use with them. Uh, and for myself, I use it. If there's a new skill that I want to develop, if there's something I want to get better at, if there's something I want to change, I'm going to go to DTI first. Hmm. I have to say that, that the um, DTI on the future self is one that I go to quite a lot. And I loved uh, just some of the, the pieces that I got from, from reading that section. Things like, you know, take a position where you can see both the future self, the ideal self, and the present self, whatever that is, and look at the space in between and all the steps and decisions and choices and, and things and, and start to notice that there are things that you did to get there and start to notice, um, you know, perhaps there are certain choices that need to still happen. And like just, just seeing how those things are connected, just taking a third position in there before coming back to a fully associated position and, and picturing, you know, what's out there. Yeah. This, the space in between this is actually, this is comes directly from John. Um, uh-huh quantum fourth position. Yeah, it sounds like him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's really important because you can think of it as a parts integration. If you're doing a DTI, you're creating a part. Yeah. And the way to integrate it is to hold both parts connected at the same time. Yes. It's, it's an integration. Um, it's really useful, especially because it lets you, just like you're saying, load up a lot of suggestion about, you know, you're already taking the steps towards this change, towards achieving this. Yeah. The next small step you can take, uh, which also is a, one of John's patterns. Um, so yeah, it's really important. And as Gregory Bateson once said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you can never truly know something until you know it from at least three different perspectives. That's great. That is wonderful. Yeah, let's wow. say that again. You can never fully know something until you have seen it from at least three perspectives. Hmm. That's so cool. That is fascinating. And you know, Carlos, it reminds me of uh, our Vipassana meditation training. It does. It really you, does. Have, you have craving, you have aversion, and then you have observation of craving and aversion. Yeah. You know, you got to take that third option, that third perspective. That's so cool. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that, that alone, just people doing that, like if, if, if they got one piece out of it, that would be a pretty valuable piece to have. Yeah, so if you're, like, even, you know, for a classically trained hypnotist, say you're going to, like, you know, zone them through the floor, load them up with tons of suggestion, put them through some change process. Once you have the resolution, move them through the different perspectives. Have them experience the resource as themselves. Have them experience the resource as a loved one, watching them have that success. Have them experience uh, having the resource from the third position of looking down at them and how they're interacting and being in the world and then expand out to the fourth position. Give them as many different perspectives as possible because then the other thing you're doing is leveraging neural networks. If they have different perspectives, even just in the visual field, you're lighting up new connections. You're building a stronger uh, muscle, for lack of a better word. And uh, we do know that neurons and neural connections, they grow like muscles do. So the more often and the more variety that you get these neurons firing together, the connection becomes bigger. That's huge. And, and yeah. if, if a person took only that away from it, that would be <laughs> worth the price of admission because uh, you, we can often nod our heads and go, yeah, totally. And then it kind of just goes on to the next thing without reflecting on how profound that really is. Yeah, and yeah. if you do reflect on how profound that really is, you start to notice that literally that just means you need to put things into practice and you need to do them often and you need to put your full, you know, as much 
commitment into whatever it is you're picturing, visualizing, or imagining yourself doing, do it often and do it with gusto, do it with fervor, do it with as much as you can put into it because you're changing your brain as you do this. And give it a good title. This is give really a good title. So if you're, if you're for yourself, if you're doing visualizations of like how you want to be, make sure that you have a great title for it. Like I am becoming this, this mm. is me. And why is that important? So we have something called working memory mm -hmm. and kind of the easy way to explain it is you can imagine it as like a silk screen that separates conscious attention and unconscious processing. Both the conscious mind and the unconscious mind can project onto the screen and it does it all the time. Your brain is constantly running a three second movie. Everybody is. Right. And it can be like mundane stuff. Like my movie is about working memory right now. Uh, <laughs> maybe just about the environment you're in. But it's always there. And when it comes to visualization, that's what we're using. But the movie is only one component because there's also a soundtrack, which could be just environmental sounds. It could be dialogue. It could be the lack of sound. And that's kind of when you start to have some problems. You need to pay attention to that. And then finally, every great movie needs to have a title. And we naturally and unconsciously assign titles. And titles are usually beliefs or values. So... You know, I see this a lot with clients. They could have like the best inner movie in the world, but if they have a really terrible title, that movie, it's going to be filtered into impossibility. Sean tells a story. He had a client who, you know, had this great inner movie of like the life that they want to be leading. And the title was something along the lines of, I can never have this. <laughs> yeah. was, okay. I guess we're going to work counter to that. Yeah. On the flip side, I had a client, this was several years ago, uh, she was coming to see me for, I can't remember, I want to say it was public speaking, but I could be way wrong. Um, but just through our conversation, she happens to start talking about uh, her life and growing up in the worst uh, abuse situation that I've ever encountered as a professional. Like I talk about like stepping into the client's trance as she started to tell me this, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. But the title of her movie was I am who I am today because of this and I'm stronger because of it. So mm -hmm. what could be a horrible visual, her brain is classifying in a very different way. These titles you're referring to, um, it sounds like by your description that um, sometimes it's just subconscious, like they, they don't even realize they've titled it that, but you as the person uh, with sensory acuity, listening in a particular way can notice that uh, it sounds like the title is this. Yeah, it'll it'll leak out. Uh, it often will leak out in how they talk about the movie. Uh -huh. It'll be a, like a, a yes, but. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, you don't even have to be that covert about it. Sometimes I just ask the client, what's the title of that? Because that becomes empowering. If you ask them consciously and they have to go inside and get it, that's gonna. That's now opening up a skill for life for them, because now anytime going forward, if they're playing a movie, all they have to do is check in on the title, and then they understand why they're thinking and feeling the way they are. So in this case, you're you're making the unconscious conscious. Yeah, you know. Wow. There's, yeah. There's the uh, the old Ericksonian worldview of there's no need to make conscious was unconscious, and in some instances, this is absolutely right. Uh, the primary example that's coming to mind to me is uh, if you're doing any type of ratification or discussion, like that's right, because you're mm -hmm. tracking what the body's doing. They don't 
consciously need to know. In fact, it's better if they don't consciously right. say what right. you're marking at, uh, because it, you know, you don't need that that level of interference. Uh, and in some cases too, it's really useful for the client to just have the change and not know how it happened, but know they're different. And this tends to happen more with classical hypnosis. This is why, you know, hypnosis kind of has the view of being magical. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my view is if we do that all the time with clients, if we do that all the time with the same client, that's not giving them skills for living. And remember, this is, come to a session, this is a learning environment. I want my clients to do their work with me, having skills that make them more resilient so that they can take what they've learned and start applying it to all sorts of other aspects of their life. To give them conscious control. Mm. Uh, and as John says, you never know how far a change will go. Yeah. And it's my mm. hope that the change goes well beyond whatever they came to see me for. Right. Mm. Wow. That's, that's pretty mind blowing. I love this idea of, uh, you know, sort of consciously choosing a title for something. It's kind of like, uh, there's been plenty of times when I saw a painting and it was a mesmerizing painting. I'm like, I oh, don't, what is this? And then you read the title, you go, <laughs> Oh, you know, yeah. like I'm thinking of Van Gogh's Starry Night, right? If yeah. I just saw the painting, I go, okay, cool. But, go, but what's it called? Starry Night. Oh, it pulls my attention into the right thing. You know, it, it would kind of be fun to take uh, famous movies and change the title, you know, like, like Braveheart, you know, change the title to Local Agitator. <laughs> Changes the way we view it, you know. <laughs> you know su Superman, you know, uh, you know, uh, evil alien, you know. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. Wow. And the thing with changing the title is, you know, in some cases, yeah, you can just go ahead and consciously do it uh, because as soon as the conscious mind realizes what's going on, then you have you have a bit more leverage. Uh, the times where the title won't change. That shows you kind of where the problem is because that there's a conflict going on there and it's usually a belief that's happening. So that's where you'd go do that would be the next point in the change process. Mm. Okay. So it, it, the titles are powerful. Wow. Boy, that's, that's a great one on the list. Carlos, yeah. we're going to have to put together a list of that's. Right. <laughs> that's one thing that we need to, that's another thing. That's a third thing. Yeah. So for a sure. list of that's that's, this is a, good one for me i'm already thinking of things in my life jess you know <laughs> i'm like well what how am i titling that how i've how have i been titling those images and pictures that i tend to loop around in my mind you know the question to ask yourself whenever you're noticing one of those inner inner movies is what's most significant to you or if you're doing it for yourself what's most significant to me about this movie yeah uh, and this Thank is like standard that. values elicitation type question from nlp mm. uh, but then you'll get a lot of information if you just listen yeah, wow. Can we talk a little bit about the difference between classical hypnosis versus this conversational hypnos uh, hypnosis that you're talking about, the indirect sound? Sure. So uh, the way to imagine it, um, and this is this is Sean's model, and I think it's brilliant. So I'm going to share it with you. Uh -huh. uh, just imagine four quadrants: so one, two, three, four. Uh, two lines dividing them. And if you were to put in the lower left-hand side classical hypnosis, and the upper left-hand side NLP, the upper right-hand side Ericksonian, and the lower 
right-hand side uh, conversational or the HNLP approach. Uh, the way we can think about how these are divided is based on, um, not to be too jargony here, but meta meta programs. And <laughs> meta programs, uh, just to make it simple, you can think of these as shortcuts in your brain. These are like the factory installed programs that help you navigate through life. They're the, the preferences that you have unconsciously that help you make choices. For example, uh, some people are internally framed and some people are externally framed. What does that mean? Well, you were to imagine um, you're at work. Do you want to be given a task and just told, you know what, I'm going to be hands off. Just get it done by this date. Do you want to be in the same job situation? And do you want to have someone constantly telling you, do this, you're doing a great job. Do that, you're doing a great job. What would be more internally framed? What would be more externally framed? Another way to know this is if you were to think about anything that you're really good at, anything you excel in, how do you know you're good at it? Hmm. Yeah. Is it because you know it, you feel it? Or is it because some people in the outside world are confirming it for you? Or is it somewhere in between? <clears throat> so we have tons of these metaprograms, these heuristics in the brain. And it's not neither or, it's a spectrum. I know I'm talking about it, either this or that, yeah. but it's really a continuum. And we all fall somewhere in the middle. It's more analog than digital. Uh, yeah. So it's, you know, most people are going to be somewhere in the middle. Somebody who's completely internally framed, uh, who doesn't have any external frame, we have a, we have a term for them. <laughs> Psychopaths. Right. Mm -hmm. People who are completely externally framed without any internal frame are like the neediest people on earth and probably don't have many friends. Mm. Uh, so most of us are in the middle. So we have lots of these and there's two main uh, metaprograms or heuristics that we're using to make the distinction between these different types of hypnosis. One is internal frame versus external frame. Do you want somebody to tell you what to do or do you want to figure it out on your own? The second one is options versus procedures. Right. Uh, procedures, if you go back to the work example, do you want to be given a task and you are given like the step-by-step -step process for getting that task done? Or do you want to be given a task and you'll figure it out? You're going to test lots of things out and it'll get done, but you know, maybe a list is going to be a little bit too stressful. I'm, I'm more on the options end, by the way. <laughs> I find lists incredibly stress inducing. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, so we all fall in that continuum and these are context driven. So you can have different, you can be on one side or the other in different contexts that can change. And by the way, just pardon the interruption, but what you're saying already reminds me and probably would remind some of the listeners of Myers-Briggs. Somewhat. You know, yeah. there's, yeah, you know, it's, a bit, it's a little bit simpler than that. And we don't, we don't make, um, we don't make broad conclusions about the person's life. Like we don't get into pro, uh, profiling a person as being this, this, or this. Well, nor should uh, they, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Because it's context-based. Yeah. And the context, even if the same environmental context is the same, if the actors in it, if the people in it are different, or yeah. you know, you're a different age, then you shift. But it's it's a useful metaphor for kind of classifying this stuff. 
And it's closer to what Jung was saying that um, Briggs and Myers drew from. Yeah. Because because Jung was talking about it not as personality types, but as modes. Yeah, exactly. And if we if we think about what the brain is designed to do, the brain is designed to conserve energy. Yeah. The brain is designed to find the quickest path from root from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. So the meta programs are one way we do that. Because if we had to sit and think about everything, like any decision, it would be time consuming. If I had to sit after I got done teaching an awesome class, if I had to sit and think, was that good? Was that bad? Like that's no way to go through. Mm-hmm. It's too time consuming, too energy consuming. So coming back to the world of hypnosis, we think classical hypnosis, this is kind of like what usually pops up in culture and in movies, you know, you think of the swinging watch, the direct suggestion. Stage um, shows. Yes, stage shows, absolutely. Uh, and this is where the process is procedure-driven. So there is a step-by-step, for example, the element induction. Yes. And it's externally framed. The hypnotist is in charge, and the hypnotist is going to direct the process. And, you know, in some classical approaches, uh, if something doesn't work, it's the client's fault. <laughs> Um, I know. <laughs> I, I don't think practitioners today actually function that way, uh, but I have seen it in the literature. Yeah. That's the caveat there. So it's it's process-driven. The hypnotist is the guy or the lady leading the show. Then above that, we have uh, what we can broadly term as NLP. NLP, EFT, to some extent symbolic modeling, uh, depending on who's doing it, who's facilitating it, could be in this category. Uh, and this is going to be still procedural, still procedures driven, but it's internally framed. So the hypnotist, and I, I should make this caveat, whether we're doing EFT, hypnosis, NLP, conversational hypnosis, all that stuff, to me, it's all hypnosis. Right. So I won't really make a distinction here. But we have in this quadrant, NLP. Uh, The practitioner, the facilitator is going to guide a person through a process, but the person has the freedom of response. So it's like, okay, imagine that circle on the floor. What emotion do you want in that circle? We're going to like use the circle of excellence, for example, a a classic NLP pattern. Mm. If that pattern were done in classical hypnosis, the hypnotist would tell the client what emotion to put in that circle. Right. NLP, there's more, there's more choice more freedom of response. We move over to the upper right-hand quadrant. This is Ericksonian, at least Ericksonian as it's taught. Erickson actually didn't work this way, Uh, but it's internally framed. So the client has ample freedom to respond in any way that they want. And it is not going to, it's going to be options-based. So we're not going to lead the client through a step-by-step process. We're going to create an environment that facilitates change. We might call metaphors. We might utilize hypnotic phenomena, uh, but it's not a clear cut. Do this, do this, do this, do this. It's more open-ended. Got it. Uh, I should say that Erickson at any point in his career would have circulated through all four quadrants. Uh, just yeah. on when, what footage you're looking at. Mm-hmm. The final quadrant is going to be the conversational approach or the HNLP, the John Overdorf approach. My approach, actually, I am in his lineage as a student. Uh, and this is going to be 
externally framed with options. So as the hypnotist, my job is to lead my client from point A to point B, but how we get there is up to the client. Mm. So, you know, I, I am definitely the, the person who's running the interaction. However, there's ample freedom to get there. Whatever the client does and brings to the table, we can work with. Uh, so that's the, the four ways that I find classifying hypnosis really useful. You could probably break it down even more, but then it just becomes too much. Yeah, but that's useful. Yeah, and as a practitioner, I mean, I, I do circulate. Like my, my home, my original training is actually an Ericksonian. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I trained in NLP. My home is in the Overdorf approach. But, you know, I will get clients from time to time who are very externally framed, who want to be just led through a process. They want to be dropped in the trance and have a, have a process done to them. They're usually the smokers or, or these guys. Right, right. Uh, then I'll do it. You know, if a client comes in and expects overt trance, I better at some point in that session facilitate it because if I don't, their conscious mind is going to start doubting the change and that can undo it. Yeah. It's a mismatch. Yeah. This is really important. If you are a conversational hypnotist out there or an Ericksonian and you have a client who wants overt hypnosis because they'll say it, it'll, it'll leak out in their communication. Do it. You don't have to do it as a part of the change piece. I typically will do a nice, a nice trance at the end of a session for integration and I'll load up a lot of direct suggestion there. Um, because lots of people who see a hypnotist, that's what they want. So we have to meet that expectation. So right. be comfortable moving through the different quadrants, regardless of where your natural tendency resides. Well, you know, there's a lot of um, things that, that people call covert um, yeah. suggestions, you know, um, that are quite direct in a way, even though it's, it's covert and direct. Like, for example, yeah. you start off this conversation by saying, if you picture a square and there's a quadrant and there's a line going through it this way and a line going through that way and up in your right hand quarter is you know i was following along with you and responding perfectly to what it is you were telling me and i was beginning to see these different categories and of course um you know it's just a quote-unquote conversation but you're also directing my attention and you're adjusting my um imagination to be yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But embedded suggestion and uh, the interspersal technique; these are really direct. These are, these are Ericksonian language patterns. Yeah, they're incredibly direct, and I use a lot of embedded commands with my clients, even though I'm doing conversational work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to load up as many embedded suggestions for clients and in training environments as possible. Because why not? Yeah, and <laughs> it's it's interesting. Um, for me as a practitioner um working with clients uh i'm careful very very careful to go in with a respect for um what i don't know um with the understanding that my life has shown me that quite often there are things that will be revealed that i don't know at the moment and uh and so that model that way of looking at it that um, each person has a unique genius inside of them that um, is doing its best to um, work through their personality and through their character and through their life and has um, some challenges along the way. The conscious mind's a part of them as well. And the, uh, un- the subconscious patterns of uh, negativity that may be layered 
uh, above or in front of or in the way of that genius expressing itself. Um, those are, they're all bits of the human being that need to be acknowledged at some point. Um, but I initially get people thinking about, you know, the frame of mind, which is you've got this genius inside of you. Don't blame your genius for the things that you learned early on that have caused you trouble. It isn't your mind trying to sabotage you. It's your mind trying to work it out. And that's why you're here in the seat. That's why you've come. That's why you're doing this work is because there's something underneath that that's driving you to heal it. And that thing can be trusted, whatever that thing is. So I would invite you to explore that, invite you to um, remember that as you do this work, that you will get uh, a better understanding of what that genius is. You know. That's lovely. And that, that outframes uh, the, meta, the meta problem that a lot, a lot of clients will bring in. Not just that they have the problem that they want to change. They have a problem with the fact that they have the problem. Yeah. Mm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a lovely outframe for that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I keep trying and trying and trying. Why do I always have these relationships? Gosh, I'll never be happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm terribly ashamed of my shame. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. and exactly. You know, clients think that their problems, are, this goes back to what I was saying. Clients think that their problems are real. Yeah. If, if you watch gestures, like gestures are, I love gestures. They will reveal so much about unconscious processing, way mm -hmm. more than language does. Um, they will talk about their problem and they'll gesture like this. It's yeah. like they're holding it. They're holding it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they've, they've been in the trance of this is real and either I can't change it or changing. It's going to be really hard or it's not going to work. Uh, one of the most valuable things our clients can learn is that they are a process. They are not concrete. Even this thing that we call identity isn't a thing. It's a nominalization. Mm -hmm. We are a process. We are constantly evolving. We're constantly in motion. Yeah. And the, same, the same is true for the client's problem. It's not a concrete thing. Our job is to introduce movement back into it and then freeze it into the client's past. Yeah. You know, let's talk about that for a moment because that's yeah. super useful. Um, you, you, if we backed up a step, you said, you know, identity is a nominalization, mm -hmm. right? A nominalization yep. is, is something that, that, you know, it's not a physical thing. It's not something you can actually physically manipulate, but you're referring to it as if you could, like you're treating it like a noun when in fact it's a process or a doing that's happening. Right. So it's an intangible thing that's being referred to as though it were a finite thing. Uh, and the problem with nominalizations uh, I mean, obviously, we, we do nominalizations because of what you said. We're trying to save space, trying to save effort, yeah. conserve energy in the brain. It makes sense to, to, to speak in nominalization sometimes. However, <laughs> if we have that and uh, we don't realize it's a nominalization, we're assuming that other people understand what we're saying, they're actually mind reading. Yes. They don't necessarily know what you mean. But the expectation, we find ourselves unconsciously nodding along like, yeah, I totally get. And then you realize, wait a minute, I don't get it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm yeah. not inside your experience. We, we have this common shared delusion, but who knows if it's actually the same. Yeah. And so if, yeah. if identity is a nominalization, is, is saying that, you know, we, we become attached to the idea, though, I have an ID, you know, I am this, I am the father, I am, I am the president, I am the whatever it is I am. I have this title and that's me. And yet, and this, this is how people screw themselves over. Yeah. Like, just to be totally blunt about it. Yeah. This, 
this can be the most empowering or the most horrific hypnotic trance we put ourselves in. Right. The I am, the complex equivalence. I am this, I am that. I am a trainer. I am a hypnotist. I am a friend. I am a weightlifter. Those are all limitations. Those are mm-hmm. tiny little boxes. You are so much more than whatever label you place after I am. Mm-hmm. So like in English and in just like, you know, unless you're a yogi on the top of the mountain where you can get away talking really weird. Uh, we have to say these things <laughs> uh, because it's, you know, it, it's life and we want to fit in. Um, but the, the trick is to maintain the understanding that whatever you place after I am, you are that and also not that. Mm-hmm. There's so much more. Wow. Yeah. You know, what this reminds me of, um, Jess, is Carlos and I, you know, some time ago uh, interviewed James Tripp. Mm-hmm. And he told an amazing story that really affected me. Um, he, you remember, Carlos, when he told the story about um, getting on a small plane on a vacation? Yeah. And just, just momentarily, he started to kind of have that panic of, oh, my God, like, yeah. we could crash and die. You know what I mean? And then he said he started to feel that panic come on. And then he said, what are all the other things that I am besides this? Yeah. And it was like, wow, I could just feel my consciousness just go boom and expand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when he said that, you know, it's, it's just, what else am I? What are all the other things that I am? It just reminded me of that story. Yeah. Uh, there's something there. Thank yeah. So if you kind of expand, expand the lens and realize that you are like way more mm-hmm. than any of those titles, and even that sense of self, then it, it's really, it's freeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we see this with clients. Clients come in and they're they're constantly, I guess the best way to say it, once again, NLP jargon, sorry, is the uh, a, a mixing of logical levels or a confusion of logical levels. Yeah. I am depressed. Well, no, you're more than a state. Yeah. I am anxious. Uh, and we have to we have to linguistically undo that. Because if we don't handle the what's happening at the identity level, if we don't expand them out beyond that, nothing else we do is going to stick. Because mm-hmm. they still have identity is kind of like at the top, just under God, and everything <laughs> else flows from it. So if they have this, if they've taken a, a state or a behavior or a label that isn't useful, and they've moved up to that level of identity, and we're still working down here, good luck. Uh, so once again, like smokers are a good example of this. I am a smoker. Well, no, no, you're not. But if they leave the office still believing that that is their identity, they're going to pick the pack up again. It's only a matter of time. So we have to be thinking about this as well for our clients. What are, how are they constructing their experience of themselves? Because mm-hmm. they're most likely going to see themselves. They're going to describe themselves at, in terms of the problem, especially if they're associated into it. They're also going to most often, unless once again, you have like someone who is in kind of the more esoteric spheres, uh, they're going to hold on to the identity as being a permanent solid thing. And that's useful in some contexts, but it's not so useful when it comes to change. So, you know, it's something that I make sure all my clients know, uh, and this once again comes from John, and it's the idea that all you are is changing. Mm. Yeah. Wow, you know, Jess, um, it's interesting. Uh, in 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 ancient Chinese medicine language, mm-hmm. 
um, they don't use the word have when they refer to a disease. And um, English speakers have this word have, <laughs> right? So, um, for example, uh, in, in medicine, we'll say, oh, I have migraines. But in ancient Chinese language, they don't say that. They say, um, I present this pattern. I present this pain. Wow. And, and, and the actual word that they use uh, for a pattern in Chinese is zheng. And zheng also means evidence. So, so the, the Chinese diagnostic system says um, that this patient presents a pattern of disease yeah. X. And, and that makes a big difference because as soon as you stop presenting the evidence, you are no longer that. Yeah. Right? And it also, it also hints to the idea that um, it's just a current pattern of expression. It's not a state of being. It's also a dissociation. Yes, yes. And there was just some natural brilliance, I think, in that, in that ancient language and the way that they, they expressed disease. It changed their whole beliefs around disease. Well, hey, if that symptom changes, well, then the whole pattern looks different. Yeah. And, and you're no longer presenting that evidence anymore. Now you're presenting some other evidence. Something new, new and different. Yeah, right, right. Now, you um, obviously, I'm going to see you at HypnoThoughts uh, soon. Yeah, yes. right. Pretty soon in August. Um, so not too long, we'll be able to have our uh, our annual beer together, and um, uh, that'll be fun. Um, but you're teaching a special course. Is it a pre or post conference course? We are teaching a three day pre conference course. It's a crash course in Ericksonian hypnotherapy. Um, this is not going to be about language patterns. So for any listeners who think uh, Ericksonian is just language, we're actually not even really going to touch language all that much. Uh, this <laughs> is going to be more about the therapeutic paradigm. So we're going to talk about and we're going to explore inductions, elicitation of hypnotic phenomena, utilization of hypnotic phenomena, uh, some of the other, the other things that Erickson did that made him really powerful, like the use of tasking, uh, mm. the structure of change, systems thinking and therapy uh, and what's going to distinguish this is as far as i know we're the only people who do this we are going to be ut utilizing as one of the main teaching structures deep trans identification nice uh, it's going to be fun and it's highly interactive lots of exercises lots of trance lots of skills building so that's august 13th 14th and 15th the tuesday wednesday thursday before ht live in las vegas nevada in las vegas yep yeah, well, that's, that sounds really amazing. Um, wow. That's, I'm sure it's going to be phenomenal because you don't do anything but your best. Yes, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. We already have a, a very nice group signed up. So please, for those listening, you know, if you, if you want to sign up, please do. We'd love to have you on board. And what um, you learn in Las Vegas doesn't have to stay in Las Vegas. They could take it yeah. with them, right? Oh, yes. Okay. okay, good, good, good. Please take it with them because I don't want to be like cleaning up anybody's wisdom and learnings out of the room. So take it with <laughs> yeah, that's just messy. Well, was there, is there anything else uh, just kind of off the top of your head that you thought would uh, you'd like to share that we haven't covered? Uh, you know, I, I think that's it. I will share this, that to okay. everyone listening, if you ever get tempted to fall into a trance where you think you are one thing versus another know that that's not true 
that you are so much more than anything you can consciously re- realize. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was lovely. Yeah. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, this was yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, great. You. This is a great conversation and lots of good stuff. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Okay. Yeah. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Jess Marion. If you'd like to learn more about Jess, you can find her website at jess-marion, that's J-E-S-S-M-A-R-I-O-N.com. My name is Oliver Altine. I record, edit, and produce the show. I also wrote our theme music, which you're listening to right now. And the interstitial music this time was a fun thing with uh, some tablas, some tambora, a little bit of bass and guitar. I just threw it together just recently. I thought it turned out pretty cool. Let me know what you think. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. Leave us a comment. Send us a line. We would love to hear from you. And you can find our website at AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day.